Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Last week was the New Living Expo here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, I uh, was on the uh, production team. I was a uh, producing consultant, and uh, I might have mentioned in the past that um, we uh, had some had some great people come up from around. Uh, actually, came out from different parts of the country, but Scott Walter uh, came out and gave an amazing presentation on uh, the Templar Knights presence in the United States. Uh, his presentation was standing room only, probably four or 500 people. But um, some of my favorites were there. Uh, uh, Clifford Mahuti, the uh, uh, Zuni elder of the Kachina uh, clan was, was uh, there. He came up from uh, Arizona and Mike Barra uh, talked uh, a little bit. And today's program is going to be uh, is going to capture a couple of presentations, or well, not actually the full presentation that they gave, but post presentation to kind of touch base with uh, a couple of people that were at that show. 
Uh, I was really impressed both with uh, Mahudi's uh, presentation and Mike Barra. So th- we're going to be hearing from them in a one-on-one interview shortly. So that's, that's, today's, that's today's program. But um, if you ever get a chance to hear any of these authors live, you should try to go uh, if they're in your area, simply because when an author writes a book, he's taking just part of his research and compiling it in, in a, in a paperback book or hardback book, whatever it be, whatever it is. Um, but usually, and I've found this over the years of producing a number of events, they have uh, material that they couldn't put in the book, photographs, um, graphs, images, but also quite a bit of other material that um, is, is provided in a, in a lecture. And, it's always good to kind of see what their thought process was behind creating the book, but also it's an opportunity to hear why they decided to write the book, what was compelling and um, highlights that you probably didn't get uh, to, to, to read because uh, there was too much to put in. So if you can, hear an author that you're really enjoying live and in person, try to do it. I've always suggested that to people over the years because a lot of times the material is fantastic. I'll give you an example. When when Zachariah Sitchin wrote The Twelfth Planet, he was actually uh, writing a a number of books uh, at the same time. He was writing a trilogy. And when he came out to speak uh, on that book uh, in San Francisco, it was amazing because not only did he talk about the book itself, but he talked about uh, aspects of the book that were uh, providing him content for the next book. And it, it was just fascinating to hear about the Anunnaki, his uh, belief and theory about it, and then some visual evidence of these giants <laughs> that apparently walked the earth at one time. So it, it, it's, it's an amazing, uh, it, it was fun to listen to that. So anyhow, that's that's why you need to go hear a lecture. So New Living Expo happens once a year. It was great. It was fun to see. I'm still recovering from it. Uh, my girlfriend, uh, Deborah, was there. She went to go see uh, Nassim Harriman, who uh, we're going to have on the show. And he is a, a brilliant physicist that's talking about consciousness. But uh, he also talks about uh, the mind of the ancients on their uh, ruins um, and it's really it was really fun to listen to he's somebody you have to hear from the beginning to the end because he gets into physics and if you're not a science person like myself you really have to pay attention to get the whole uh, breadth of what he's presenting so but uh, as my girlfriend said you have to sit from the beginning to the end and pay attention <laughs> Which, if you're the producer of the event, you're in and out of each each room, and and uh, uh, you're trying to make sure everything's running smoothly. So I, I wasn't able to pay attention. So when I did sit down for a minute and listen to his presentation, I was going, "What? What is this?" So anyhow, uh, he will be on the show in June. Nassim Harriman. So uh, stay tuned for that. This week. Um, I want to make sure uh, you have a chance to go to the Facebook page. I posted a number of fascinating um, galleries 
having to do with uh, extinct extinct civilizations. And um, I have one gallery that features a number of skeletal remains that I discovered when I was in Mexico of uh, uh, of wide headed people. We're all we're all familiar with the elongated long heads, cone heads, if you want to call them those. Uh, people from Paracas, from um, Mexico, and from South America. Um, but there's very few galleries on these unusually wide-headed people um, who, I mean, it's impossible to have, you know, manipulated their head. These are all naturally occurring um, growth, uh, people that grew these unusual heads, a different strain of humanoid. Um and uh, uh, these heads are so big that many of them have brain mass that's between 35 and 40% more than what we have. So, you know, double the size, close to double the size uh, of a normal cranial capacity. And um, we don't know uh, what their role was in the Maya community where they're some, sometimes found. Um, but uh, I, I also posted another gallery of elongated heads, fantastically elongated heads. And um, in a graph that I created in 2013, I actually show uh, this graph you can see on Facebook. By the way, go to Facebook Earth Ancients and group page. You can see a, a, an example of what a typical brain mass uh, would look like. And I had the artist um, take a uh, illustration of a human brain and um, distort it in such a way that would fill the cranial capacity of one of these long heads. And it's a side view profile. And you get an idea of just how big the brain of one of these uh, elongated people would, I mean, what it would look like. And, in my research, in my study, these people, at least in, in Yucatan and in some other uh, areas of uh, Chiapas, when they're profiled, when they're presented in sculptural reliefs, in, in um, paintings and, and, and uh, figurines, they are what appears to be a priest class. Uh, and And at that time, the priests were intellectuals and scientists as far as we know but they may also have been consultants or whatever it, it, they're, they're portrayed in Ekbalam which is a city north of um, of uh, Cancun uh, and north of Chichen Itza the big main city in, in uh, Yucatan they're portrayed in a, a stucco relief as a uh, not a, a god, but a, a councilman or a, um, uh, a perhaps a political figure, and and they're, uh, for lack of a better word, ordained to be uh, a person of of uh, knowledge. Uh, in fact, this one figure uh, that's very well documented, Ekbalam, has wings in the back, and he has. Uh, uh, a very regal stance, and I've seen many of these in other sculptures, and I've seen them in pottery where the long heads are uh, revered. And we don't know 
you know, where they went. Obviously, we don't see people with these elongated heads anymore because they just don't exist. Um, if someone's born with a head like that, it's usually of a, a birth defect of some kind. Um, but my feeling and a lot of feeling of other uh, researchers are this class of, of humanoid died out, probably uh, from what you might consider natural selection. And the, the, the belief is that the Earth has gone through a number of different periods where uh, various human types were able to exist because either the gravity was uh, less or, or it was more dense, whatever. Uh, we know that uh, uh, Jose Gamara's father, Alberto Gamara, believed that there were no, numerous phases in the Earth, Earth's history where it was closer to the sun or pushed further back uh, because of uh, cataclysms, uh, bumping other planets, things like that. We don't know how the Earth was shifted, but it would greatly affect the the uh, the humanoids on the Earth. And one of the theories is that these long heads or wide heads uh, were were developed because of the gravity of the Earth. So could be could be also just a strain of of humanoid. Uh, that's lost in the evolutionary tra- uh, 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 history. We don't know. It's, it's it's just weird. But anyhow, check out Earth Ancients. Check out the Whiteheads, which are very unusual. I have, I have about twenty photographs of these dudes, and, um, <laughs> and then check out the Coneheads, the Longheads, um, Earth Ancients Facebook group. And uh, they're kind of fun. People have made a lot of comments about them, so check those out. We're going to go ahead and start with this first presentation. Um, this was an interview done with Clifford Mahuti. Uh, I was interested in his um, belief that his ancestors came from Mu, uh, the island of Lemuria on, uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And in our uh, last talk with him, which was about a year ago, he described this great migration, and so here is um, a continuation of that and a little discussion about um, the type of human that was on Earth 25,000 years ago. So here it is. So I'm here with Clifford Mahuti, and we're at the uh, New Living Expo, and uh, we're actually resting here in the hotel, but uh, I... Uh, had the pleasure to see uh, Clifford uh, present to a packed room. I think the estimates were standing room only. It's about probably close to 300 people in there. And um, he had a great slide presentation. And, uh, hey, it's great to to talk to you again. Yes, how are you doing? (laughs) It's good, great. Um, So one of the things that we talked about when uh, you were on the the radio show was – this long journey, this um, this uh, trek from uh, Mu, uh, this huge island in the Pacific Ocean that a lot of people consider Lemuria, <clears throat> um, and and uh, this uh, migration, this huge migration, and uh, this is what your the elders told you, and and these are your. Uh, ancestors. Um, is there something unique about those people, about that time period and the kind of human that was on the earth? Well, one of the 
one of the things they talk about, or at least what why identified them as the archaeal Zuni, which were not in a very functional form. Uh, when they were supposedly theoretically on the island, and one of the things that they had uh, was that they had real odd uh, physiology. They had web feet, they had uh, six toes, six fingers, and a tail appendage uh, on the on the bottom. And then uh, I I don't know whether it was true or not, but their sexual organs were not in the the present stage as the the neo Zuni, so to speak. So mm-hmm. uh, when they left the island, when they're going through there into the through the island I mean to the ocean into the new land they had to have some type of a uh, conversion so to speak made uh, when they reached the new land and this is where the uh, star people or the emissaries of the god gods in God system came down and helped sort of like uh, ev- uh, evolved the or, or resurrect the type of uh, human that they're supposed to be mm-hmm. when they reach the, the mainland, which is presently what the United States is. Now, when you say they had web feet and six toes and six uh, fingers, was that because they were aquatic also, or was it just a, kind of a genetic thing at that point? I think it was primarily a genetic thing because when they were on the on what they call the where the new beginning was they uh i think that's just the way that they evolved up to that point and uh once they got over here to the mainland where they were given a new uh route and direction for the new place that they would be that they had just left they had to modify their whole physiology Hmm. and uh, this is where there's so many uh, background information uh, that has been uh, provided, and this is where they talk about the twin god system. They talk about the the ancestors talked about the the uh, supernatural beings that were helpful in evolve or rather uh, adjusting the the bodies of the ancient ones, mm-hmm. and sort of like in the a modification into the neo Zuni because this was a different type of land. Mm-hmm. This is a different type of uh, requirements for a new new land, and so in, including that process was also they had to go into the caves. So they were uh, when they were like that, they had to sort of set themselves backwards as far as their body parts were concerned. And that was another step that they had to do in order for them to become functional. Hmm. What we call the fourth world. The Hopi, the Zuni, and other Indian tribes call this the fourth world. Because they had left where they were, uh, the land that theoretically was out in the, the west in the ocean part, they had to come to a brand new type of a land. And they needed that some type of a, a, a makeup or the system that they can survive mm. in the new land. So this is where the as the uh, history and the uh, legends or mythology goes. This is where they had to modify 
mm-hmm. the body part. Did, did were these humans uh, in possession of um, uh, great intuition? Were they rudimentary kind of sh- poorly evolved beings, or did they possess some kind of uh, ability? Because Lemuria, that the Lemuria that I have uh, heard about is uh, Catherwood's description, where these were somewhat enlightened beings and that they were, in some ways, the term is etheric, which means that they're kind of not really uh, fully embodied or not. But, I mean, he, he got his information from what he believes is decoding some ancient uh, symbology. So it sounds like you have more of a solid, handed-down, verbal interpretation of that period. Well, one of the things that they talk about is that, the uh, first of all, uh, several uh, information received not only from the the Indian tribes that they were sort of like androgynous type people. They were both like a male and a female, mm. but they were also a very spiritual oriented people with uh, uh, what they call a compassionate intelligence. And they were very advanced beings. And one of the things that they practice is that they had peace among themselves. They had a a sort of a continuous harmony, not only with the planet, but with also other otherworldly things, especially the etheric beings that they were involved with at that time. Now, we're talking at least 25,000 years ago. Yeah. And the Hopis claim that they said, well, according to our calendar, we were, we were uh, around seventy-five thousand years ago. So, it, that because of time is irrelevant, the the only way that they can sort of judge it is by the evolution of the species that later on became the. Uh... So, um, if if this this is twenty-five years ago, was the migration? 25,000 years ago, or did the migration begin after uh, an earth change of some kind? Well, according to many of the the research that I've done, that it actually probably started about 10,000 years ago. Mm. Uh, And so between 10 and 12,000 years ago is when they they had a very cataclysmic uh, event, which was uh, a flooding. The uh, uh, the Archaeo Zuni uh, was probably at the island, uh, and then about ten thousand years ago was when uh, actually, when uh, according to many many historians that and and, and uh, information that I received from many sources is that it probably sunk about about 10,700 years ago. Hmm. Okay. And so prior to that, they had, uh, because that they, these were etheric beings that they're occupied in Lemuria, according to uh, many sources, they started the migrations of a lot of different folks hmm. or, or, or tribes at that time toward the islands. And, and this is one thing that's also curious is that they, they dispersed to the other islands, such as uh, South America, I mean, uh, yeah, South America, in and uh, and the uh, p- the islands in the Pacific, 
mm-hmm. and there's a lot of ties that went with with it. But the mass of the people that migrated to the mainland uh, probably started about that time. Okay. And the it, it's in an allegory form, uh, the way that they have explained it about the the uh, uplifting of the earth and the and then the 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 flood and and during the routing is when one of the places they stopped was in the Grand Canyon supposedly mm-hmm. and this was where they were that was the end of the third world the Hopi Zuni talk about end of the third world by a flood okay so uh one of the things I want to get as much clarification as I can from you is who are these off-world beings, and why would they bother to help these early Lemurians to not only uh, change uh, their physiology to be more uh, successful with the environment? Why? I mean, was there some kind of communication, or did they just have pity on the people, or and decided to? you know, show up, or, I mean, what is this, what are the stories, what, what is it, what's the deal on that? Well, according to the, the rituals and, and the system that Zuni, Hopi, and others have, is that they were actually what we call star beings, or, or what is commonly known as star beings, and they were also the protectors and the creators of the life that uh, had its beginning in, in what is, uh, termed as Lemuria or Mu, and uh, but these there were other living things all over the planet, other tr- uh, people type people. I mean, uh, living beings, but primarily that group that left uh, Lemuria were guided by these. Uh, uh, perhaps the uh, connection of the etheric beings that were occupying. The landmass at that time, uh, or Mu, and then they were also supernatural uh, beings, which also what we might consider them today as ancient alien people. Hmm. There's been a lot of different uh, theories set forth about this type of uh, connection, and they came from different star systems. Hmm. You take the same parallel with the American Indian. Uh, Southwest Indian tribes, they talk about the star people connections from different constellations, different star systems. And so that there was actually a connection with the uh, the star beings along with the etheric beings. So perhaps the etheric beings that occupied Lumeria were same stock as the uh, other constellation system living beings and of course they were in multi-dimensional beings you know it's funny you talk about these um aliens or these ancient aliens coming to uh to lemuria mu and helping them or working to transform them physically it kind of reminds me of sitchin's book where the anunnaki come down and they uh, uh kind of genetically re enhance uh, the humans that are on the earth who are very primitive. This is the, the Sumerian tale. And uh, make them into their Adam, according to Sitchin. 
uh, or our Adam, the biblical Adam, and it's much more it's much more intelligent, it's much stronger, and uh, it's funny, it's almost like a parallel. What do you think about that? Well, I think that in in this case, uh, that's what the Zuni uh, they term it in their own language as the the creation place that was in the middle uh, of of the the landmass surrounded by water. And all rituals, uh, prayer system, uh, ceremony, uh, and other spiritually related activities of the Zuni people always start at the West. When we when we talk about that, our religious order systems, the prayer systems start at the West, and when also throughout the whole life of the uh, the Zuni human. After they die, they go back to the west side. Mm-hmm. The Eva, it's sort of like in the in the Egyptian theory about going back in 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 their boats to wherever they had arrived from. And in this case, with the Zuni, they always go back to the to the west side or the west the westerly direction of where they are at at present time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, is there any um, re- uh, reverence uh, prayers said to these star ancestors, uh, these so-called ancient aliens, in today's practice? Absolutely. Uh, they're they're dependent on the ritual. We talk about uh, there's a, even a prayer group that talk about the night. Uh, night priesthood that uh, and also in this one particular prayer system it also includes a female portion of it a male and female portion of it and also the Mm. priesthood of the night night sky people and this is uh, there's always a uh, depending again on the occasion the ritual or, or the ceremony they talk about that, but they always, t- and everything starts from the West. The moon the moon starts from the West. Hmm. You see a little phase of the moon, and it completely slides to the East. Uh, the, the sun goes into the West, and they call it the resting place of the sun, hmm. or it's, it's, it's temple. And mm-hmm. a lot of the prayer systems, uh, and when, especially when it comes to the Kachina system, they refer to the West, where where they they arrive from to go into the villages like at Hopi and Zuni and other uh, pueblos. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also the other pueblos also have a reference to the West side, and there's many names in, in that basically it means the same thing in in all the language groups. Uh, they, it's either called Welima, Wenima, or uh, or uh, they even have a term that is uh, used as Hawiku, which is also the name of a place in the Zuni. That's where the Spanish first came and met the Zuni people. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like if you look at the Egyptian names in the Grand Canyon, because they were it's directly related to the same Egyptian places in Egypt, the same thing that applies in Zuni, that uh, other tribes also refer to, 
especially our brothers to the south. Hmm. They always referred to the to the west, and their names had been transferred to the what they called it the new land when when they finally arrived there. Mm-hmm. So it was a very well detailed plan of what they were supposed to do and how they're supposed to get there. Hmm. So this was uh, this was it's so meticulously detailed, and there's it. It looks like it was a grand plan that was a, a master plan. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, one last question, and I'm going to let you go. Um, uh, uh, that was a fascinating presentation that you gave today. I missed the last part. Do, do you uh, – And we, we had a, a follow-up talk uh, chat about uh, your presentation today. Do you um, uh, believe that the sightings that you see today – are of these uh, overseers, these star people. Uh, you, you said something, you said a percentage were, and then you also said a high percentage were actually U.S. government <laughs> ships, which I thought was funny. But uh, uh, w- do you believe any of, any of these uh, connections to the ancient past or some of these beings who might be in these, these craft? Yes, I. Uh, there's a lot of uh, not only the southwestern Indian tribes, but other indigenous uh, Indian communities throughout the the whole, especially the United States. They always talk about the Star People. Hmm. We have really actually emphasized this connection with, within the last uh, 20 years, uh, and this is where we are, a lot of people are not coming out with the information about how their connection with the star people. Uh, there's other things that are uh, actually related to it, for example, like like UFOs, and they also have uh, an increase in the amount of activities, especially in these uh, days and ages. And so uh, that uh, that is the direct connection of those people that, have always been called the caretakers, the keepers of our ways, and the creator is the one that have given these emissaries the duties to con- to look after us. So uh, we have to become humble with them, people, uh, the star people, and also to be be to be not be egotistical about a lot of these activities that they had given us many many years ago thousands of years ago mm-hmm. and they've always been around and and do you feel like uh, uh as a zuni as a as somebody who discusses zuni prophecy and zuni uh functions and lifestyles that they are an integral part of your life or is it more like they're the ancestors they're gone we we honor them and that's about as far as it goes no, it's it's part of our integral life on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're uh, what we call raw people, and and these are multi-dimensional beings, and they also take care of all the other activities related to the planet. For example, the weather control, uh, the 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 weather patterns, the 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 people's ways of what they're doing, and they're trying to control or at least uh, convey to us that we're not supposed to be doing what we're doing, especially in this day and age of where, how we are affecting what we call Mother Earth and how we're polluting the 
the planet, how we are in negligence in in paying homage to the the gods that that gave us the life, and also uh, allowing a lot of activities that stop the connection or the communications between the God system and the human system that we are we are in struggles right now. Mm-hmm. And so this is basically the, the reason why there's a lot of activity, especially with what people call the Uf, UFOs uh, out there, especially on uh, native lands, with what's left of the native communities. So this is, I believe that's a direct connection. Mm-hmm. Okay, hey, listen, thanks for spending a few minutes with me, and, and it was great to see you uh, here in uh, San Francisco. Thank you very much. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I really find um, Clifford quite insightful, and um, it's funny because he's a good friend of David uh, Hatcher Childress, who's a a publisher of um, a number of books, uh, Adventures Unlimited Press. And um, I've been trying to get him to write a book for as long as I've known him, which has been about a year. And uh, he says he's going to try to write a book because um, in his presentation uh, at the New Living Expo, he had uh, about 70 or 80 slides of some of the most amazing um, graphs of, of different people, of, uh, of uh, what they call fetishes that are carved. It's just a lot of great material. And, um, I told him he's got to write a book, so hopefully in the next uh, few months he'll get started. He said he was going to get started pretty soon. So, Anyhow, writing a book is not an easy thing, believe me. <laughs> I have like three or four in the works. So that was Clifford Mahody. So um, next up is Mike Barra, and uh, Mike Barra is the author of Ancient Aliens uh, on the Moon, Ancient Aliens on Mars, Volumes 1 and 2. And also he wrote a number of books with Richard C. Hoagland on NASA. And uh, uh, he's an aerospace engineer um, with a lot to say about uh, not only NASA, but um, his knowledge of uh, ruins on Mars and the moon is um, first rate. So here is a, a short interview with Mike Barra. So uh, I have Mike Barra on with me here, and um, yesterday Mike presented a talk at New Living Expo, and uh, as usual, he drew a crowd. I, I probably he probably had 150, maybe as close as 200 people in his uh, in his workshop. And um, Mike has a, a lot of really good slides, and and I think I was in there for about 10 minutes, and I had to jump. But uh, Mike, welcome. Nice to. Uh, Nice to have you on for a few minutes. Thanks. Well, I mean, do you think it was that many? That's uh, that's pretty cool. I'm, I'll take those numbers. You know. Yeah, good, I think good for I me, think it was so. 125, 150, but it, it was a good it was a good number of people. We we were happy. You know, I mean. Good. Producers. Good. Well, you know, you try to entertain people, and and you obviously want to have folks there speaking that uh, that people want to hear. So I'm uh, I'm glad I was able to draw a good crowd. It makes makes me feel good. Yeah. It makes no, me feel no. like I earned my money. <laughs> yeah, no, you, 
You were good, of course. And then you were on the um, the, the alien UFO panel on Saturday, mm-hmm. and that was standing, standing room only. Uh, in fact, yeah. it's funny yeah. you you posted. Uh, I don't. And I have to ask you. You have an interesting camera. You took a a panoramic shot of that room, which is fantastic, and virtually every single one of those seats was filled. Yeah, uh, it's for, true for that panel. So that that's a help. Is that a? I guess that's a. What is that feature called on your phone when you did that? Well, it's called panorama. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's a panoramic uh, feature on, on your, uh, on your iPhone that you can just, you know, you just hold it down you click and you just slowly scan the room and it can take the entire thing. It's really cool. I can do it because I just like to, um, and I take, usually take pictures of the crowd. I mean, I took a picture of the guys at, uh, at my workshop or lecture, whatever it was. Um, yeah. And I like to do that because um, I like to appreciate you know, the fact that people come to see me and it's uh, something that, to be grateful for. So, you know, it's just one of those things and I, I get to include them in, in what I'm doing and I really appreciate that. Okay, well, hey, tell me what you felt about that panel discussion. You had, uh, you had a nice little group there. Uh, Clifford Mahoti, the, the Native American uh, Zuni elder, mm-hmm. was talking about star people. Uh, Sean David Morton, I don't know what he talked about. Um, Pretty much everything. Everything in the in, in the world, yeah. But what did you yeah. feel? How did you feel that was a, a a more cohesive panel discussion? Well, it was good. It was good. You know, personally for me, I I like the panels, but what, how I feel they should be is really tight time frames on us. I mean, most people know who most of us are, so it's really not you know yeah. quick introduction. This is who I am. This is what I do. Uh, mm-hmm. I prefer the panels where the, the audience asks the questions, not the moderator. And kind of what happened was is that we had a few people, and I'm not going to name any names, Sean, who you know went way over their time. You're supposed to speak for five minutes. And mm-hmm. they, you know, different people have different interpretations of what five minutes is, I guess. And there were, yeah. there were a couple speakers, and, and basically they ate up you know, gobs of time. And then we had one question from the, the moderator, and then it was over. And I felt... Wow. I felt bad for the, the panel folks, the people that came, because what I like to do is get the interactive thing going is where they start asking yeah. questions. And that's, what, to me, the most exciting and the most fun. So I think that the panel was either a little too short or it was um, just, you know, the moderators got to control the speakers because speakers don't tend to control themselves. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> I didn't know that. Works. I didn't know that. I would have, I would have, I I I'm sorry I couldn't stick around. You know, you had 90 minutes for that panel, and so you had a couple yeah. people burn through 90 minutes. Wow. Okay. It, 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 got, it got eaten up. Uh, it wow. got eaten up to the point where there was, there was the opening statements. And, you know, there were seven mm-hmm. of us on the panel. There maybe could have been one or two fewer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's uh, primarily, you know, I think that the panels are good for promoting your own individual um, lectures and workshops but it just it just worked out that but the time just got eaten up so you know it was just all of a sudden it was over yeah shoot okay which was okay with me because then i could go back to the bar and drink so you know it's okay (laughs) (laughs) okay hey well uh let's talk about your workshop a little bit um uh the the like i said it was well attended what um and i and i did notice some some slides from your book why don't you give us a kind of a general overview uh, about what that topic was? And then I want to jump right into this new book that you're working on, uh, uh, which I guess is going to be out in the fall. But the, what, in the what's fall, the, yeah. 
Yeah, what's the what was the the bottom line and what some of your latest discoveries are uh, uh, out there in space? Well, the first thing, the first part of the of the lecture was about um, some of the recent stuff that's been, you know, in the news, uh, stuff about the dwarf planet Ceres, where they have this uh, very, very bright glowing spot inside of a crater, which, you know, NASA's trying to tell people is salt. Um, I've, oh, I don't know nice. about you. I've never seen, I've never seen glow in the dark salt before. And, and the truth is that this stuff literally glows in the dark. It, it, it is so bright. Um, that mm-hmm. it's just way past any possible. There has to be energy. There has to be, uh, there has to be power coming from it to be as bright as it is. And I showed one slide mm-hmm. where, you know, the series was in darkness. Um, and yet this bright, uh, glow just keeps, keeps reflecting back at the, this incredible level, this very, very high albedo. And, you know, that's just not possible for it to be natural and to be reflecting light like that. So I was, um, in talking about that, and then um, we dug in a little bit into the recent news on, on Planet Nine or Planet X, which was discovered a sort of a Neptune-sized mm-hmm. um, planet out um, in the in the far distant solar system. And what I was reminding people is that you know myself and and Richard C. Hoagland, and then me again in my book The Choice in 2010, you know predicted that we were going to find at least one and maybe two massive planets out there in the outer solar system and they would have a certain they would be at a certain distance um from the sun and they would have a certain orbital period and as it turned out this this planet nine pretty much fits those parameters almost perfectly so Mm -hmm. you know again this is not sitchin's nibiru this is not the planet x that um that nasa has been searching for for 20 years or so, this is, uh, this is Barra and Hoagland's planet X. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that because, because once again, you know, the independent researchers, the UFO researchers, guys like you and me, and those of us that do this, um, do this, you know, we're way ahead of NASA and we appear to be way smarter than them because whenever they do make these discoveries, they're, um, they're making them along the lines of what we predicted. And then, Mm-hmm. I dug into um, to the discovery of water on Mars recently that NASA announced. Okay, let, they, let, before we go uh, to Mars, let me just ask you about Planet Nine. Now, is Planet Nine uh, predicted to have an atmosphere that would support life? Well, no, not at this time. It doesn't seem to be that. That doesn't seem to be the case. But nobody really knows what it's made up of yet because it hasn't actually been observed. What we've actually seen is its gravitational effects on other small planetary bodies like Sedna and so forth that are out there mm-hmm. orbiting around. I, I hesitate to say the Kuiper belt because I don't think there's any proof that the so-called Kuiper belt actually exists yet, but mm-hmm. you know, orbiting out there at great distances. So we haven't actually observed it yet. And until we can observe it and do some spectroscopic analysis, we're not going to really know um, what it is made up of, but it, it's okay. most likely um, a gas giant type planet like, mm-hmm. Saturn or Neptune or, or Uranus. And how many light years away is it from us? Guess, guess. Well, it's not, not any light years away. It's, it's about 50 billion miles away at probably its closest approach, which is exactly where me and the hoagie said we were going to find another planet is 50 billion, (laughs) uh, not light years, 50 billion miles away. Um, right where we said it would be, it's in an exact orbit that we said it would be. Um, 
And, you know, I made very specific predictions in my book, The Choice, and I said, you know, that there's this hyperdimensional physics theory, and if it's correct, then we will find at least one and possibly two more planets about 50 billion miles out with a 13,000-year orbital period. And right now, the closest estimates are it's 50 billion miles out with about a 15,000-year orbital period. So we're dead okay. on right in the ballpark, you know. And that's okay. just, it's really gratifying to be confirmed. So Okay. And so what would be the next um, bit of uh... – of analysis, is there a, a is there a satellite that's going to swing by someplace, or do we have to depend on the Hubble uh, telescope to tell us? Well, now we have to use instruments um, like the Wise instrument that's out there that's looking in the infrared. We have to use telescopic observations, and we you know again, it's a space is really big, so we have a very very yeah. wide field that we have to look at. But we have a um, we've narrowed it down a little bit, and we have kind of a general area that they're looking, and they're going to basically scan that area first. And mm -hmm. fortunately, what we have now is we have the mathematical calculations that give us a really pretty good idea uh, where we're going to find it, like the, the, the plane of the orbit and, and so forth. And, I, I, you know, I'm very optimistic that eventually we're going to find it visually. And then, then we can say for sure that it's, um, it's actually a discovery. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Let's talk about your sweet spot. And I call it the sweet spot because you've written two books uh, Ancient Alien on Mars 1, Volume 1, Volume 2. And so uh, this is your baby. And uh, so you started, uh, before I interrupted you, talking about water. And, and it's kind of a pain to hear NASA. It's almost like it's, it's, it's so, from, for, from an independent investigator's point of view, it's really flat and uh, boring to hear them say, oh, we've discovered water. So what do you want to say about that? <laughs> well, I mean, that was another one of the things that was recently in the news. And again, not to continue to toot my own horn, but when you're right, you're right, you know. And, and way back in 2001, we published the Mars Tidal Model paper online where w we basically said that these dark uh, slope streaks, these dark streaks that, that come run down the slopes of uh, craters and and uh, mountainsides are liquid water stains that are drying up, evaporating in the, in the Martian um, atmosphere. And, of course, at that time it was believed that you could not have liquid water on Mars, that it wouldn't last for more than a split, split second. And mm -hmm. we said no. And one of the reasons behind that was that we predicted, based on a whole different number of factors having to do with the fact that Mars was actually the moon of a planet that exploded and not a planet in and of itself, but basically on all these different factors that it was going to be a very salty, briny kind of uh, water solution. You know, and lo and behold, 15 years later, NASA comes out and says, well, these dark slope streaks that have been photographed and they seem to dry up, we think that they're water and it's, uh, it's a very heavy, salty, briny kind of water. So essentially, mm -hmm. they completely validated the predictions that were made in 2000 and 2001 by mm -hmm. myself and, and my coworker. And, you know, again, there's no acknowledgement of us at all in the literature. NASA says we've discovered water on Mars. Well, kind of like no you didn't it was actually discovered by us 15 years ago but given the fact that that you know i'm kind of a rogue um mars researcher who's in uh, the face on mars and all kinds of other things there's just no yeah. way in a million years they're going to give us credit for anything because it gives the rest no. of what we're talking about credibility yeah then, yeah then you, the pandora's box uh, has opened and then the whole cydonia region is exposed and then uh 
the other areas. Now, you talked a little bit yesterday about the pyramids in Silesium. Uh, What's that area? Uh, Elysium. Yeah. Elysium. Excuse me. Elysium. Yeah. And you were comparing. Yeah. Um, funny that because you were comparing the satellite, the uh, the pyramids on Silesium to the ones that are found in China, which I mm-hmm. thought was kind of interesting. And when I actually looked at it, they are shaped quite like those uh, pyramids in, in China. Is there something new there, or is it just more? Was that more of a reference point that you were bringing out? Well. Yeah, Clifford, I mean, they're virtually identical. There's, there's a couple of pyramids in China that have been discovered that have been shown up in Google Earth. Um, and I, I was just going through one day looking at them. And, and I was also curious for one of my Mars books to write up a little bit about Carl Sagan's Pyramids of Elysium, which he talked about on the original Cosmos series back in, um, back in 1980. And they were tetrahedral-shaped pyramids, three-sided in, uh, in the Elysium region of Mars. And I, so I did a search on, you know, pyramid, Elysium, that kind of thing. And I got a link to a Mars orbiter camera image, which was not a three-sided pyramid, but a four-sided pyramid, partially buried on the Martian surface in isolation, which is another way you can tell something is artificial because, you know, mountains can be pyramidal, but they're only pyramidal if they're part of a mountain chain, they don't form that way in isolation. And, um, you know, I lined them up and they were an exact match. I mean, the, the, the sides of them, the structures were collapsing. The walls were sort of caving in in exactly the same fractal degradation pattern, fractal erosion. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, if this one we know for a fact is artificial and you overlay it on top of the one on Mars, the odds to my mind go way, way up that the one on Mars is also artificial because there's just no real good natural explanation for it. So to me, that was just a great example of, okay, prove me wrong on this one, guys. Yeah. You know, you, you have an um, issue with John, Dr. John Brandenburg uh, and his uh, uh, nuclear explosion uh, bit, but you, you kind of do agree upon the fact that there's other man-made structures uh, throughout, throughout the the surface of Mars. Um, I guess before we leave Mars, what, what's hot on Mars right now? What, what, what is a, a new focus? Because there's multiple, multiple postings every single day on various Facebook pages of uh, images that look like motors and piping and building foundations. And a Glock and pistol and a crab and, yeah, I, you know, I was um, I was actually a little bit disappointed um, because yesterday because there were images that I wanted to show that didn't come out very clear on the screen. And this is one mm-hmm. of the things at conferences that is kind of a pet peeve of mine, which is that you have to create, you know, darkness around the screen because sometimes you lose resolution, especially when you're looking at detailed stuff um, mm-hmm. on these projector screens. So that was kind of a, a pet peeve of mine. But there's all kinds of stuff. There's what appear to be fossils. There are things that... One thing that looks like a stormtrooper's helmet that pretty mm-hmm. much is some sort of bony structure or helmet or something. I mean, there's water on Mars. There's lakes and so forth. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff um, all over the planet, and it's just a continuous basis. I mean, there's folks that are doing this research, Neville Thompson, various guys that I I, I follow on Facebook, and they're, gosh, they're just always coming up with with amazing different things on the planet Mars that they're posting. And, you know, my philosophy is if it looks like a piece of machinery, 
it probably just is a piece of machinery. And the fact that it's mm-hmm. on Mars doesn't dissuade me from that. So, yeah, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff that you could talk about with regards to that. But, I mean, other than Cydonia, which obviously to me uh, has a lot of elements of surface and underground uh, canals, probably, possibly a city, is there another area of Mars that has elements of Cydonia where it looks like it either took a hit from a bomb or an asteroid hit that uh, evaporated the atmosphere and then just the zero uh, atmosphere destroyed what it was on the surface? I mean, is there any place else well, like that? Yeah, I mean, the whole southern hemisphere of the planet has been bombarded by an incredible amount of debris, and I think that that's from the exploded planet that Mars mm-hmm. once orbited. Mars was in a tidal lock relationship, just much like the moon is in a tidal lock relationship with the Earth, meaning it always shows the same side, same face to the planet Earth, and, and Mars was the same way. And then when this planet exploded, mm-hmm. it just left, it just completely blasted the planet, did ripped away the atmosphere, caused the survivors to live underground, which is why you see these monuments on the surface at Sidonia, and then you see them underneath in the infrared images and stuff. So I think what you've got is a situation where um, you've got multiple layers of civilization there on the planet Mars. And, and uh, are there other areas besides Sidonia? Yeah, everywhere. I talked about an area called, um, called uh, Parrot City, which is uh, in the Argyre Basin. And it is an entire city complex with streets and roads and houses and factories. And, you know, it looks like there was a, it looks like Flint, Michigan or something back in the day when they used to produce cars. <laughs> you, you know, here's where the cars are. Here's all the split level housing. Here's oh, interesting. the main yeah. factory. Here's the, here's the exhaust vents. Uh, here's the loading dock where they would obviously bring the supplies. And, and so there's stuff like that that I can go into um, great detail about. So there's, there's, Stuff like that everywhere on the planet Mars. I mean, literally just all over the place. Um, you know, I mean, I agree with you uh, on a lot of those points. What's fascinating is, and, and for those of us, uh, those of you who are listening, uh, Mike's second book, Ancient Aliens on Mars, Volume 2, he actually took uh, photo images from the European Space Agency who sent up a unique type of satellite that had uh, not only stereophonic vision, visioning, but mm-hmm. could take uh, and uh, detect, uh, it had night vision uh, capability to detect. In- infrared capability, color imagery yeah. also. There was Mars yeah. Odyssey, which had infrared on it. Yeah. Yeah. But your, your work was really brilliant in showing the uh, superstructure, not only of the face, because a lot of the face has been damaged through uh, just uh, age one uh, and mm-hmm. it's been age erosion. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was really fantastic. But you you also show uh, scans of the surface of Mars where it appears, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there is underground activity of some kind, either lights or an engine system that's uh, perpetually in motion that's causing uh, heat to rise to the surface or something. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that explanation to my mind, it's like NASA probably has equal sophisticated, equally sophisticated camera work is probably picking that up too. And oh yeah. I'm sure they have. Yeah. From that going back there and going, what the hell's going on underground? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, literally it's right out of the film forbidden planet where nothing survives on the surface to speak of. And, and really forbidden planet, the, the film Altair four is really Mars. I mean, it really is Mars. 
Um, right. <laughs> it, it, even though symbolically it's something else. And they're telling you the story, the real story of what happened to Mars, that there was this, this incredible war um, of some kind, and, and everything above ground is pretty much wiped out or in ruins, but everything below ground is actually still working. The lights are still on. And we found this from um, Mars Odyssey 2001 uh, infrared images that were released. And, and you're right, um, NASA, ASU, Dr. Phil Christensen, they clearly obviously have much, much better versions of these images that they released, but we can only work with what they released to us. And, and Keith Laney, very brilliant image analysis guy from North Carolina, um, did a lot of the work with it. And, and one of the things we did was at the time is we took, we took visual images that we had from the Odyssey and overlaid them mm -hmm. on these infrared images. And that's when all of a sudden this whole cityscape under ground at Sidonia, under the ice, just came out. And again, we're talking buildings, roads, bridges, temples, skyscrapers, all of this buried under about 1,400 feet, we think of ice, um, and uh, showing you this incredible tunnel system and what look like trains and trams that run back and forth to various above-ground structures. And it really is, is quite extraordinary stuff. And that's what gave me the idea for the face on Mars imagery you're talking about, which is that you know, there's only so many images of the face that are actually directly overhead. NASA has a habit of taking things off to the side. But if you can take all those different visual images and if you start laying them one on top of the other and combining them together, what you see is more and more and more detail. And, and so what's actually happened with that, that to my mind, is that, um, you know, the different images we've had of the face, none of them, they're all different cameras, they're all different hardware, they're all different software, they're all different lenses. And really, none of the cameras has really captured what everything that's down there at, at yeah. on the face. But when you combine these five to seven different data sets together, wow, then all of a sudden, you start to see this extraordinary structure. You see the teeth in the mouth. You see the support structure on the, on the left-hand side of the face, the left cheek or the right-hand side from our perspective. You see nostrils in the mm -hmm. nose. You see the eye socket. You see the pupil. You see the tear duct. You see the eyebrow. You see this, this beveled platform, which is completely symmetrical that it, mm -hmm. it stands on. And there's no such thing as a mountain anywhere in the solar system that is symmetrical, that is not artificially constructed, you know? So it's just, it's, right. it's just really, truly amazing stuff. And I'm, I just, there's even more work that should be done on that than I even have time to do. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you, I think I asked you this before when I had you on the show, you know, the European uh, Space Agency's satellite was positioned in such a way that the face was all the details, well, as many details as we could find or get, mm -hmm. were shown in those in those images. And then here's the Malin camera from NASA or Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, taking what they call their best reference of the face, and it looks really crappy. Yeah, it's really crappy. Now, well, doesn't that it's... show them up and embarrass them? Like, uh, yeah, it does, it? but. Well, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't embarrass them if nobody challenges them on it in the scientific community, and nobody ever does. And, yeah, what huh. Malin and his cohorts do, did and what they've kind of done with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is they like to shoot the face at 
oblique angles and then stretch it and distort it and say, oh, well, we're auto-correcting it. You know, we're, we're orthographically correcting it so that we can get a more direct view overhead. And right. that ends up looking completely different than, for instance, the European Space Agency images, which were taken directly overhead with the face basically at 90 degrees to the lens of the, of the camera. So those are the best pictures. Those show you what you're really getting. You've only, there's only about four or five sets of data um, that were directly overhead where you don't have to do a lot of stretching, pushing, and pulling. And so, you know, of course, the ones that the news media and NASA always promotes are, are the ones that are the most distorted. So it's a trick, it's a game, and you have to be really smart to kind of catch them at it. And it also makes it difficult um, to, you know, to talk to an audience about because it's a very technical argument, uh, that aspect of it. So I've reached the point where I just take the good pictures, combine them yeah. together and show people this is what it actually looks like. And that's really, yeah. I think, some extraordinary stuff. So, Do you think the Chinese uh, who have their satellites out there and I don't know, I don't know if it's the Italians or somebody else, um, do you think if they were to, to, to take, because they took some very interesting photographs of the moon a few months ago mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that I thought were very unusual because the coloring was unique and they said there was no retouching. Uh, do, you, do you think that the Chinese took some photographs of uh, of the surface and and they and they revealed something that the United States would kind of fess up to anything or would it still be the same? No, I don't think the I don't think the U.S. will fess up to it. I think even if they were to take pictures that showed the face on Mars and all of its true glory with all the support girders and structures and everything everywhere, yeah. um, they would NASA would just ignore it, not comment on it. And and like it didn't exist. That's but that that's would be a com- or say, well, that, obviously that's not what you think it is. And I'm like, really, it sure looks like what I think it is. <laughs> so, you know. No, I mean, like I was just saying, you you showed those infrareds of of, uh, of uh, heat, the sun uh, reflecting or heat reflecting off the girders of the face, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. deep infrastructure. Uh, I mean, the thing's a monster. It's a mile and a half long by half a mile wide, or yeah. whatever it is. It's a monster. Yeah, and, and more the, like and a mile and a half by a mile. Yeah. Yeah, the superstructure to to create that thing must be monstrous. So mm-hmm. uh, for them to to show that with great clarity would be just like here it is. You know, well, what can you say? It would be the smoking gun. Yeah, it would be the smoking gun. So I mean, people would go get. You, we got to get our ass over there now with man. You know, we got to we got to have a man uh, a man man flight to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Anyhow. Okay, well, look, let's talk about your new book. Uh, you hinted on it. It's not going to be out to the fall. Uh, right. What, what I haven't can been we started expect? yet. <laughs> what can we – no, no, no. You're supposed to be saying I have tremendous notes and I have a tremendous – Well, I am doing research. research. I am okay. researching it. I will say that. Um, okay. so well, the, the book title will pretty it, – it'll tell you pretty much everything. It's called Hidden Agenda, uh, NASA, and the Secret Space Program. So it's looking at, you know, there's all kinds of people talking about the, quote, secret space program who really I don't think are giving um, giving information that's really very reliable. It's kind of, I don't know, a lot of um, a, a lot of just, you know, noise, and there's not much really substance behind it. So what I thought about is, you know, this is unfortunately my curse in life is I, I can't just kind of make stuff up and tell good stories. I have to actually go through and research stuff and try to support my argument. And so um, I, uh, I decided that it might be worthwhile to go through and look at NASA's involvement with various different 
types of unusual technologies, anti-gravity technologies, and so forth, and, um, and see if there really was some evidence that there is a secret space program of some kind. And, you know, it turns out there's an awful lot of information that indicates that there is. It, there indicate, it indicates that NASA was deeply involved in some of this stuff, along with many, many major aerospace companies. The technology appears to have come from either Nazi Germany and the Nazi Bell and various experiments that were done there, or some of the technology appears to have come from actual um, alien crashes, you know, crashes of flying saucers. That is a distinct possibility. And so as I, as I dug into this, um, I really got more and more fascinated by the depth of the information, and I, I decided there's, there's a book here. So now, now what I'm doing is, um, is focusing on that, that book and trying to, get, um, trying to get this all together in time for the fall when people can hopefully enjoy it and, mm. and you know, follow the, the pattern. I'm going to do it chronologically. I'm going to do it from way back into the 1800s when the search for anti-gravity really began and follow it all the way through to um, to today. What are we seeing actually today in, in modern times? Okay, well, that's that's my next question for you. I uh, I have sp- spent some time with uh, Clifford Mahoti and some other people that see a lot of these night sky lights and, and craft flying around mm-hmm. out of the desert observation. Mm-hmm. He, he had somebody tell him, and he won't say who it was, he says ex-military, he believes 80% of the craft that we see now considered UFOs is uh, Earth-based, with a percentage of 20% being off Earth. What do you say about that? I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, it looks to me as though we probably made a breakthrough in um, in anti-gravity technology probably in the late 1950s. We probably were able to practically operate the craft in the 1960s. And I think uh, the vast majority of, of what we've seen in the skies uh, probably is of our own construction. Mm-hmm. I like to tell people that if it's a disc-shaped object, it's probably one of theirs. Uh, if it looks like a Dorito, it's probably one of ours. So <laughs> that's, that's my philosophy. That's um, funny. Yeah, the tri- you know, there is something about the disc shape, though, that seemed to make these various anti-gravity effects more capable, more prominent. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, again, this is one of the parts of this story that I'm going to be digging into as, uh, as I develop this, uh, as I develop this story, this book, this story that I have to tell. So, okay. Well, that'll be fascinating because there's so much peculiar, uh, material on that area. I mean, there's these ships that we don't know about. There's Mars, there's the moon, uh, there's just so much uh, strangeness that isn't explained to us by the government that we pay taxes toward to 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 uh, give us an understanding to, to to go out and do the research. So, well, just because we pay them taxes doesn't mean they feel obligated to tell us the truth. Let me just let me just clarify that yeah. right away. Um, uh, you know, yeah. so just one of those. Um, it's it's not like it's a it's not like that that makes them um, uh, indebted to us. Let's put it that way. Okay, so the, here's here's another one real quickly, and this then we'll end it. So, who if if Trump were to become president, what do you think he would do in terms of uh, this whole question of uh, 
UFO alien interaction with with the military and the government? Well, I think it's completely unpredictable. And I think that that is what is so deeply frightening about Donald Trump to many people is nobody knows what he's going to do. Nobody knows what he's going to reveal. You know, he's, he's very um, direct. He's very, he doesn't beat around the bush. And, you know, one of the things there's been rumors for quite some time that Hillary Clinton is rather seriously ill. Like she may be actually fighting cancer. And if you listen to the things that Trump says, what, Trump is consistently saying is um, things along the lines of, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I'm going to be a better president than Hillary Clinton is because, you know, I've got the stamina. She doesn't have any stamina. I've got the stamina to carry through with these, you know, this, the responsibilities of being president and yada, yada, yada. So he's always bringing this up. And I mean, he's very clearly taking a shot across her bow saying, I know that you're sick and I'm going to expose that you are sick. Um, hmm. And I think I that that's, uh, I, it, yeah, yeah. He's been doing, doing this constantly. If you listen to his, his, his statements and his conversation. So I, his interviews. And, I, and so I think really, um, really you're going to be quite surprised by that. And I, you know, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to go into the UFO thing or not. I, I just think that his appeal is that he is not really owned um, at this point by anybody. And I think that's yeah. a real, um, that's something that he, you know, is going to be a big advantage for him. Because he's not, uh, he doesn't need the big uh, business to fund him. He's funding the, a lot of his own stuff. Is that what you mean? He's, he's funding it himself. So he doesn't, have, he doesn't have to take any money from anybody. And that gives him yeah. a, you know, a certain degree of independence that nobody else can really, um, nobody else really has ever had. So it's, it's going to be quite unique, quite shocking. I think. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, I think, to... I, I think what, I think Trump's going to win and I think it's going to be a, a lot of uh, mind blowing. Don't, don't say that because that's scary. Oh, it'll be, come on. It'll be a good, it's not nearly as scary as the last eight years. Come on. It'll be fine. <laughs> the guy, the guy has insulted all of our allies and, and uh, you know he was. Oh president. no! But uh, Obama's the one who's been insulting all of our allies. He's, he hasn't insulted our allies. He's insulted our enemies, which is a whole whole different thing. So you know, oh, okay. um, I don't know. Just come on, relax, breathe. Let's see what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get too, I do we think, don't get political on the show here. No, no. I mean, it's it's really. I really don't. I mean, politics does matter. I I think that they, you know the powers that be don't necessarily dictate who wins except maybe the last election. I think there was definitely some interference, but, um, but they, it is said that they dictate your, our choices, you know, like which choice do we have? Do we, do we really have that many, you know, different options? And, um, and in, in reality, I think it's, um, I think this is one that they didn't plan on. And I think they're very shocked that this is happening, but I hate to say this, I predicted exactly this type of political and financial upheaval in my 2010 book, The Choice. So if you really want to know what's going to happen and what's been happening and why it's happening, go pick up The Choice. Okay. Hey, Mike, thanks for spending some time with us. Um, we'll, we'll check back with you probably in the fall. If, uh, is this going to be uh, David Hatcher Childress published uh, book, this book coming up? It or is not? indeed. It is going to be Adventures Unlimited Press. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Fantastic. All I'm right. glad to hear it. All right, Mike, thanks again. I appreciate your time. Yeah, we'll talk then. Thanks, Cliff.
was uh, Mike Barra. Always great to have him on the program. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, again, if you get a chance to go and hear any of these people in person, you should do it. And uh, I invite you to come out next April uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. If you are in the area, um, come out to the New Living Expo. I try to work with the producer, Ken Kaufman, to bring some of the best people around the country if not the world, sometimes we, we bring people from um, different parts of the world to come out and speak to um, speak about not only their books, but their points of view. And um, it's always fascinating. It's always fascinating to hear. So New Living Expo, come out next year. By the way, you can go to newlivingexpo.com and there are different types of presentations you can download for a fee. Um and if you want more information on that, send me an email at cliff at earthancients.com, and I will send you some information on New Living Expo. So look forward to it next year in April. So, um, All right. Well, that's it for today's program. I want to remind you, uh, our guest next week is John Major Jen- uh, Jenkins. Uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, he wrote the book 2012 and um, is a expert on Mayan calendars. Um, I've never had John on the program. I've been a real big fan of his. He has, uh, is one of the uh, academics that has uh, crossed over and doesn't follow the path of the academic profiling of the Maya. Uh, he's more on my, uh, has more of my kind of focus, which is that they were multicultural, inherited much of their knowledge from a previous civilization, but what brings uh, what's interesting about John is that he uh, has interpreted these calendars in such a way that we really get a good insight as to what the thought process was behind a lot of their the Maya uh, uh, thinking. And the book 2012 was was huge. Um, and we're going to hear about what has happened since 2012, the new uh, the things that have come true and some of the things that are up and coming. So stay tuned for that. That's next week, Saturday the 14th. I hope you have a great day. Bye-bye.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.